Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the first of the year. Hope you had a good start to 2021 and are staying warm during our cold snap. I'm starting off the year with a look back over some of the programmes from 2020. As always, I'm so very grateful to everyone who comes on, who volunteers their time and knowledge. And thanks to you for listening. I'm always happy to receive feedback or suggestions, so do get in touch on email. My email is hkhradio3 at gmail.com. That's hkhradio3 at gmail.com. So here's a look back with a few snippets from Hong Kong Heritage programmes over the past year. Evelynia Liangkan is a long-time community artist in Hong Kong who I've known for more than 20 years. She's involved in heritage projects, bringing back Hakka culture to villages. She works with elderly people suffering from dementia. She's been doing fun fitness videos for elderly people stuck at home due to COVID-19. She's also the founder of Art in Hospital. And prior to that, Art in the Camps where she brought shared art experiences to adults and children Vietnamese refugees in the camps of the 1980s and 90s. Evelynia Liangkan was just two months old when her family fled from the mainland at the time of the Communist Revolution. We escaped onto a boat from Guangzhou to Hong Kong. And during that time already, the, the Communist China's uh, People's Army were already, you know, trying to stop people that get on the boat. And they uh, fire at the people. And then my sister got pushed down and step, being stepped on. And her ribs got, like, tear, three of her and there was a missionary doctors from New Zealand that saved her life. I think my brother that time was maybe about nine years old, eight years old, and he remembered the doctor's name. And later, like uh, my brother immigrated to New Zealand, he found that doctor and he interviewed him. And the story is being proven. Yes, he said, I remember I saved a little girl's life. As Evelynia explains in the next segment, she was teaching art at Chinese University when she became more aware of the situation of the Vietnamese refugees in the detention camps. And then at Chinese U, 1986, I saw a lot of news about the Vietnamese uh, refugees coming to Hong Kong. And I asked my students, do you know what's happening uh, along the coastline near Chinese U in Sha Tin? Do you know what's happening? And a lot of them say no. And some say, yeah, there's a lot of like this boat people. And I said, do you want to help them? Maybe with art? And then the, some of the students, uh, the Chinese youth students said, yeah, sure, you know, but how? And this is how it started. So I met a friend, Stephen Nesheim. So we started up a, a society called Garden Streams. And then we start to take students, you know, from Chinese U into the Vietnamese camp. Where was the Vietnamese camp? Uh, the first one is in Thai Ta. The second one is in Thai Island. And actually, we spread out our wings to most of the detention camps. What were they like when you went in? It's really terrible. It's like barbed wire. It's all metal. And then the floor is cement and it's silvery color and it's very hot. I remember that first day, the first time I went to High Island detention camp, is there was three gates I have to go through. And it was very bright, sunny day. 
but everything is silvery and hot, and I feel very cold inside. And I have to go through three gates. Search, search is almost like search. Do you bring in any weapon? And I got inside, and inside is again is barbed wire, metal gate. Everything is metal, and I can't stand it. And I said, "Can we change something instead of is instead of、uh, doing art activities? Can I do murals? Can I do murals and turn all this terrible environment into? It's like this. So you've got that's the illustrations that you did, is it?、Um, yeah, yeah. So you just see these children just sitting in in mesh cages, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's like that. And I talked to the police. It was during that time. It's the police department, not the correctional.、Uh, it's the police. And they said, yeah, you know, you can bring your student and do one weekend and blah blah. So we did one weekend. We created、uh, a few murals. And at first, I thought that maybe that's it. You know, we do it、uh, one time. You know, sort of mural painting in High Island. You know, and it's only after like three months, the police department called me and said that、uh, Mrs. Ken, can you bring your student again? And do more murals, and then he said it was after that we did all these murals. We did maybe four or five, you know, for that weekend. It's、uh, the environment change inside the camp. And this was Kaitak, or、uh, this was、uh, in High Island, and inside the camp because、uh, people start to sit under the fans. And then people start to chat around, and there is less hostility. And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yes. Do bring in more students to come and do artwork together with with the artists inside the camp." And this is how we start our art in the camp project. Evelinia Liangkan there. The work of Evelinia's team and some of the then Vietnamese detainees can be seen at an exhibition at Chinese University. Currently, it's not open to visitors due to COVID-19 restrictions, but I'll let you know once it reopens. American author Ed Shu came on the program from his home in Missouri to talk to me about his novel Chinese Brothers American Sons, which follows the lives of two young brothers who leave the agrarian poverty of Guangdong in the 1840s to sail to San Francisco and seek their fortune in the goldfields of California, and later to be workers in the backbreaking work of building. The first transcontinental railroad across the United States, which was built between 1863 and 1869. Here, Ed tells me about working conditions on the railroad. Well, the last spike, the golden spike, was put in 1869 in May. And what's a golden、uh, spike? It actually started. That was that was the the,、uh, the last spike put in to, to join the, the Central Pacific Railroad from the west and the Union Pacific Railroad from the east, but it started. I think groundbreaking ceremony started in Sacramento, I believe, in 1862, and I have、uh, the Lee brothers joining the railroad. I believe it in, in 1863. They had like a stopover in San Francisco for about four or five years after mining for gold. And they're seeking adventure again. So this time, the older brother decided to join the younger brother on this new adventure in、uh, building the railroad. Now, I mean, again, backbreaking work because of the technology that you'd have had at the time. But、uh, because, I mean, part of it was also—can、um, you describe the very difficult part? Was actually just cutting through granite. Right. Well, granite, right? That that they they did that all 
you know, by hand uh, using black powder and dynamite and later on nitroglycerin. But you'd have these crews maybe in a shaft, all granite, and you had to build it like 20 feet high and 18 feet wide for a train to go through. And so they're using chisels and hammers, and you might have somebody holding the chisel like Li Chang, the smaller one, but the older one would be holding the chisel. And then you'd have maybe Li Yu and another miner alternately hitting that chisel, and they would probably only get maybe a foot a day and hammering and, you know, breathing all that dust by light of a candle. (laughs) I mean, it's not like there were even lanterns. And they'd be doing that day after day. Then when nitroglycerin came along, they, they did that did move a little faster. But by that time, you know, a lot of a lot of the Chinese workers were working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And that's one reason why there was that strike. And as I as I have in, in the historical novel, you know, led by the younger brother, Li Yu, that, mm. that time he assumed more leadership. Ed Shu there, the author of the novel Chinese Brothers, American Sons, which is published by Earnshaw Books. In May, Radio 3 broadcaster Sadia Usmani came on the programme to talk about a very different type of Ramadan celebration here in Hong Kong due to COVID-19 restrictions. Well, the mosques are closed. That is quite a, a major thing during Ramadan, that the one time that mosques are actually packed night and day is during Ramadan. And it's a it's a lovely place because when the fast actually opens in the evening, you do your prayer. But there is a special prayer that people do called Taravi, which they actually, and the majority of the time, it's men who go into the mosque. And this is like uh, during the whole month of Ramadan, this Taravi prayer actually goes through the whole of the Quran. They recite the whole of the Quran during the 30 days. And so people, after they've opened their fast, are actually standing next to one another doing this prayer and so it could last like up to about 30 odd minutes so that is a very significant thing that isn't happening and obviously people are not going to the mosques the other thing is is that the mosques were also a place where if you didn't have food or we weren't able to open your fast properly then you could actually go to the mosque and go and have your food and have your iftari I've known students uh, and people before who used to go on a mosque crawl (laughs) it's quite funny (laughs) Because, uh, you know, they'd go on a mosque crawl during the month of Ramadan where they'd go and check out different mosques in different areas and then they'd give a little rating of, oh, the iftari in that place was great, the pakoras were really good and the chicken was good here. Sadia Usmani there. This year marked the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War in the Pacific and the Japanese military occupation in Hong Kong. Here I talk with Albert Lam, chairman of the Hong Kong Ex-Servicemen's Association, about Peter Choi, who had just died at the age of 98 and who was a gunner in the Royal Artillery in the defence of Hong Kong in December 1941. Before he was a committee of the World War II Veteran Association, at that time the chairman was Maximo Chang. And then uh, later on, after Matt passed away, Peter had been elected to be the president of the World War II Veteran Association. And since then we, we worked together closely for many remembrance services, uh, receiving visitors from overseas to Hong Kong, and also uh, talking to local students about the history of Hong Kong, etc. What was Peter like? Oh, uh, to be honest, he's very healthy, quite fit, speak loud, if you, I re- if you remember. He <laughs> had, and maybe 
everybody say because he was a gunner, because every gunner speak loud, you know. <laughs> there was a joke in the army, say, uh, gunner never die, they just speak louder and louder. <laughs> so during the defence of Hong Kong in December 1941, do you know where Peter Choi was? He joined the Royal Artillery in September 1941. So he underwent recruit training at Limun Barrett, trained to be a gunner. So when the Japanese invaded Hong Kong on the 8th of December, his instructor told them, all right, boys, I know you are only halfway of your recruit training. Now you have to learn less of the skill at the battery. So you will be uh, on posting tomorrow to different gun position. So Peter was posted to the anti-aircraft gun position in Gailongwan, a place near Wafuchun, Lam area. Uh, at that time, they uh, actually uh, been air raid or, uh, by the Japanese bomber, and they actually, it was true, they actually shot down a reconnaissance plane in, in that area. Albert Lam talking there about the late Peter Choi. Keeping with the war theme, I also talked to war historian and author Tony Bannum this year about the bombs that fell on Hong Kong. That particular week, just before Hong Kong heritage, a bomb had just been found and had been safely diffused in Hong Kong. And so I talked to Tony about what else might be out there. Now, we, we all know, everybody in Hong Kong knows that recently a lot of bombs have been found, £1,000, £500, in one case a £2,000 bomb an ANM-66, if I recall correctly, which is a massive great thing, and the only one of its size ever found in Hong Kong, to the best of my knowledge. How many are left? Well, what's happening, of course, is that people are digging down deeper as they build uh, larger and taller buildings with bigger foundations, and also, probably most significantly, building into the harbour. When the harbour is reclaimed, so many of those American attacks were on shipping or facilities. That's where the majority of the unexploded bombs are going to be. God, it makes you think about, you know, when they're doing pile driving and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and really, uh, and there was an accident not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago, if you recall, where a lighter at sea somewhere ran into a bomb which exploded and injured a crew member. So we shouldn't really laugh because these are nasty no. things. Even yeah. after so many years, well, they're that, still it's, very dangerous. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you don't actually hear, when you get people like Alec McWhirter, who's been doing mm -hmm. that with the, the Hong Kong police and uh, for for years, and, um, you know, and he does it for 12 hours overnight. And I don't know whether, yeah. you know, you know um, you, you're, I don't know how technical or how complicated it is, but I have to say that because of his success and his team's success, that I'm actually vaguely complacent about it in the, in the idea that I'm not expecting that bomb to go up? Well, I mean, first of all, they do know what they're doing. The EOD in Hong Kong is it's very respected and they've been at it for a, a large number of years and they're coming across weapons which they've seen many times before. So we can be pretty confident in their abilities. But also, of course, it's not like the, the Western Front in France in the, in the first, first World War or the Berlin area in the Second World War where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of unexploded bombs. They are still a lot, presumably, scattered around the area in Hong Kong, but nothing like the numbers they had in those places. So, the, as you say, the American pilots were bombing from 1942 onwards, and so right up until the August? Um, that's an interesting question. The, the last raid I can actually recall was probably more like June or July of '45. I think the writing was on the wall. And, of course, the, the, the last air attack in Hong Kong, in the Hong Kong area, 
was by the British Royal Navy when they intercepted the, the suicide boats in Lantau. The freedom swimmers were mainland illegal immigrants, often teenagers, who took their lives in their hands to escape mainland China at the time of the Cultural Revolution. Les Bird was a young British police inspector on board the police vessels that would patrol Deep Bay and Mers Bay at night, watching for the swimmers to come across. The swimmers were risking everything and often came with nothing. They faced shark attacks and the risk of being run over by the vessels. They would come from all the southern areas around southern China, Guangdong, Fujian, Hunan province, and they would walk to the coast, to the southern coast. They probably didn't really know where they were going. They just head south, and they would travel at night on foot so not to be detected. They would try and find food on the way. Some of them had been walking for a month. Obviously, they were very, very hungry. They certainly weren't in any, any way to try and swim the three miles across Merce Bay and many of them couldn't swim so they would somehow find something to hold on to, a flotation device, uh, car tires, inner tubes, plastic pillows that they'd blown up and they would hold on to them and try and kick or swim or manoeuvre across the bay and some of them had been in the water seven, eight, nine hours when we pulled them out. They really were in no condition to make it, even if there were no security forces there, they probably wouldn't have made it anyway, physically not capable to, to do that. So they were in poor condition, you were right, they, they didn't really carry anything, they certainly didn't have any money and I don't think they really had a plan on what they were going to do when they made it. It was just make a break for it and try and uh, get to Hong Kong and hope for the best. Sometimes they would carry a spare set of clothing in a plastic bag, but they would drop it on the swim. When you're in, in the bay at night and it's completely dark, you can't see where you are. They must have been terrified. In your book, A Small Band of Men and Englishmen's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police, you describe one night where you're out on patrol launch one, and this is quite early on in your career. This excerpt comes from one of my early patrols in Merce Bay, and we've just arrived at our position. It's just after dark, and we, we've set up with radar and night observation devices and we're sitting waiting it's calm it's a moonless night and we're waiting for the first ice to come it was a beautiful calm cloudless night and with the engine shut down there was not a sound i stepped out onto the bridge wing took a night vision device and scanned the surface of the water at first i could see nothing of interest but there was movement on the beach beams of light were scattered in the trees soldiers, likely PLA patrol. Sir, came a shout from the wheelhouse. There are four or five small radar contacts to our port side, about half a mile. It took a few seconds for my eyes to readjust to the green glare, but then I saw them paddling steadily. I turned and nodded to the guys in the wheelhouse and eased towards the swimmers. A loud thud broke the evening silence as the deck sergeant switched on one of our powerful searchlights. The beam illuminated five swimmers, keeping themselves afloat with inflated plastic pillows. Looking like terrified children, they shielded their eyes against the light, completely defeated. A team of officers ran down to the lower deck, opened a hatchway and threw a line into the water. I leant over from the bridge wing and watched the swimmers being hauled up one by one. They were a sad-looking bunch as they sat in their own puddles of water on the deck. Four young girls and one boy, teenagers dressed in blue and grey cotton Chinese pyjama-style clothes. They looked tired and hungry, 
and were dripping wet. One girl looked around, tried to figure out where she was and what was going on. Others sat with their heads down, resigned to their fate. A cook appeared with a large saucepan of soup and porcelain bowls. He ladled it out and handed it to the five kids who gulped it down. Guan arrived with a clipboard and crouched down, asking them for personal details and how long they'd been traveling. They're farm workers, said Guan, after he'd finished his questioning. They come from Fujian province, East China. They've been traveling overland for two weeks. They've got no money, and I don't think they've eaten in days. They also said that this is their first attempt to escape. These were the first illegal immigrants I'd seen, and my feelings of pity returned. Young people trying to break free from a life they didn't want. It felt odd. I'd left home too and chosen to come to Hong Kong, yet here I was, stopping others doing the same thing. Journalist Reggie Ho joined me at a park just by the temple at Temple Street and opposite the famous Mido Cafe to talk about his favourite Cantonese food. Right now, I, I kind of enjoy places with like you can go with large groups and share dishes. Once you sort of like a, a Spanish tapas bar, tapas restaurants uh, the other day, and you know um, that's the kind of style of eating that I like. We also do sometimes like to visit nostalgic restaurants. So tell me about some of those nostalgic restaurants then. Yeah, so this is a very fun place called Taiping Kun. And there, there are several locations. Um, the original one, the oldest one remaining is in Yamate. They're interesting stories. They're famous for their roast pigeon. Uh, and also... Taiping Kun. Taiping Kun, yes. Taiping Kun is famous for their roast pigeons. And they also have one of the famous dishes called the Swiss chicken wings. Uh, and the story goes, um, is they are not really Swiss but because one of the tourists went there many years ago asking the waiter, what are the chicken wings? Said, oh, they, they're sweets, sweets. Uh. Now, I think what the waiter was trying to say was they were sweet, because the sauce is quite sweet. Uh, and so they somehow just evolved into Swiss chicken wings. Um, and also they have the... So do they put honey on them? Or? Well, a Cantonese palate, they like a little bit of sweetness in because we when we cook Cantonese food oftentimes you will see that it always requires a bit of sugar and they always like that kind of contrast of savory and sweet so I, I guess that they probably put either uh, rock sugar or maybe honey uh, but you know it's, it's soy with a bit of sweetness in it the sauce is quite rich and then they also have this dessert which is also famous is their own souffle their souffle is it's like the size of a volleyball uh, so it came out from a, with a big dish, and then there's like a, a volleyball-sized souffle. You know, it's not the best souffle you ever have, but you have it for fun. Um, I think they might still do baked Alaska. I'm not quite sure, but they are quite old-fashioned. One of those old-fashioned places. So in Hong Kong, we have a term in Cantonese called that soya sauce Western food. So it's basically Western food that has a lot of local takes to it. Yeah. Veteran broadcaster John Culkin marked 50 years in the business. He came here as a schoolboy in 1969 as his father worked in the British military and John would go on to work for then Radio Hong Kong, Commercial Radio, Rediffusion, later ATV and TVB, among others. Here he talks about some of the stunts he did for a TV show. Now, with your military connections, you were able to use... you used helicopters for some of your reporting? 
Well, my dad, being in the RAF here, when I started working at RTV, he had all the connections, so he put me in touch with the PR for the military here. And it was a team of about four or five guys, and I got to know them very well. My dad introduced them to me. So working at RTV, they said, look, you know, because your dad and stuff, we can do stuff which we can't usually do, so we'll get you up in a helicopter. And, and then my news editor at the time he said, can you get a cameraman up so we can get general shots of Hong Kong from the air? Because it's expensive to, to hire a helicopter if they had any of those days, like uh, commercially. So we had cameramen up there filming different parts of Hong Kong. All thank you very much to the military and you know, giving them credits. But how would you report from up there from a sound perspective? No, that, that wasn't reported, it was just yeah. a general background. But then we started doing other stuff because they gave me, RTV gave me a program which was, I look back and it was awful, it was called This Hong Kong. It was a 10 minute slot every Sunday and it was just general things happening in Hong Kong. So we would figure out programs to do with the military. For example, they would drop me in the South China Sea and then do a, a search and air sea rescue. They would film it all or we would film it all from another helicopter. So I, I remember that one because the water was cold and they said the the suit was watertight. <laughs> but I could film one leg going down and the helicopter had gone. It was like you're in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> one leg was going down. I thought, I can feel water. Hang on a minute. Then the other one was going down. And I thought, I'm going to drown here. Then they came back and I spoke to the guy later. He said, no, no, it's just buoyancy. Don't worry about it. And this Hong Kong, so there was a 10-minute slot about dropping John Culkin in the sea and, and <laughs> extracting him I would do the most again. ridiculous <laughs> things. I would... Uh, and this is when? How long have you been in the job by then? I'd been in about five years then. So, it's, the, just a, it's, so it's just a... This Hong Kong would be 10-minute film on a certain subject. On a certain subject. I would do window cleaning in the highest... Highest building. I think it was the Connaught Centre. <laughs> they got me to clean the windows. And of course I had the song when at the end of it, when I'm cleaning window. Now I go window cleaning to earn an honest bob. For a nosy parker it's an interesting job. Now it's a job that just suits me. A window cleaner you would be if you can see what I can see when I'm cleaning windows. You know, and it, it's just... And I was scared stiff. <laughs> I mean, is it, so what, I mean, what was the concept? Just, just it was, it was, just it was a job, but Hong it wasn't Kong. really this Hong Kong, was it? it was the, no, it, became it was the John Culkin show. <laughs> it became the John Culkin show. It's just the uh, everybody watched it, and it was, it was just so badly done. When I look at the editing, because I was doing the editing, because the other it was just left to me. So I learned how to edit all the sound on film and do this all by myself. And this would be 1978, mm -hmm. and it, it just became popular that they, they had people writing in and saying that's funny what's he going to do next this idiot you know and i was like <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was being towed behind a boat with um these kites one time kites <laughs> you know these flying kites and they towed me behind a boat and of course it's safe but then you get right up they've got them in phuket i see them going up but they're oh, parachutes like paragliding now. paragliding but these were kite big hang gliders the hang gliders and this thing went up and suddenly it turned over and i went straight into the water and I was all attached. I couldn't breathe because it had turned around. I didn't know which was up or down. And <laughs> you're laughing, but I only just made it out of that. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, my God. I nearly drowned. And that was the last program <laughs> of this whole call. R.I.P. John Culkin. <laughs> Throughout the year, British author Paul French was kind enough to share his knowledge on a novel about pirates, his own work set in wartime Macau called Strangers on the Prior, 
and then this month came on the programme to talk about his love of the late, great British former spy and writer John le Carre and the novel that was partially set in Hong Kong, The Honourable Schoolboy. Here, Paul reads an excerpt which describes the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong on a Saturday as a typhoon approaches. A typhoon Saturday, mid-1974, three o'clock in the afternoon, when Hong Kong lay battened down waiting for the next onslaught. In the bar of the Foreign Correspondents Club, a score of journalists, mainly from former British colonies, Australian, Canadian, American, fooled and drank in a mood of violent idleness, a chorus without a hero. Thirteen floors below them, the old trams and double-deckers were caked in the mud-brown sweat of smuts from the chimney stacks of Kowloon. The tiny ponds outside the high-rise hotels prickled with slow, subversive rain. The junks were lashed behind the barriers, and the Star Ferry had stopped running. A British frigate lay at anchor, and club rumours said Whitehall was planning to sell it. The colony had come, therefore, for the journalists, an airfield, a telephone, a laundry, a bed. Occasionally, but never for long, a woman. Where even experience had to be imported. As to the wars, which for so long had been their addiction, they were as remote from Hong Kong as they were from London or New York. Only the stock exchange showed a token sensibility, and on Saturdays it was closed anyway. My thanks to Paul French there with an excerpt from John le Carre's The Honourable Schoolboy. Thanks for listening and have a great start to 2021 and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.